a good, a good question to ask is what is this backlash that's happening against big tech and why? Hi, I'm Talia Freed and I'm Director of Education at Global Citizen and you're listening to The Ad Show. Welcome to The Ad Show, a podcast where I sit with some amazing personalities from across sectors and borders to have meaningful conversation on topics that matters to us. Welcome back. My guest for today is someone who is an expert when it comes to business, human rights and risk management. He is a well-known name in UN organizations as he was a UN special mandate holder on business and human rights at the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva and was also the head of food and agriculture at the UN Global Compact in New York. He is an architect by education who has also supported Malaysian conglomerates on corporate sustainability. He is the founder of Blue Number Foundation, a non-profit headquartered in New York which is established to promote rights-based approach to digital identity, data and property rights. He is the most grounded and humble person I know and a great friend. He is Puvan J. Selvanathan. Hi Puvan, welcome on the show. Hi Shimanshu. Puvan, uh, many people consider that their digital identity is what they are on social media. Can you throw some light on what a digital identity actually means? So there are different forms of digital identity. I mean, certainly every time you create a social media account, you are creating a form of digital identity. But that's not the same sort of identity as, for example, um, you know, an Aadhaar card or a digital identity card or something which is issued by your government um, or a digital version of your driver's license. Um, a social media account is really an expression of some form of um, social identity that you wish to present. So it is not really able to be validated uh, or used, for example, to open a bank account uh, or to actually create a degree of trust with other people, except for what you want to say. You are the only source of the information behind that identity. When we talk about digital identity in the broader sense, it actually should be able to appeal and to be used by many, many different stakeholders in different contexts. So certainly a social identity or a social media identity is one form, but its uses are actually very limited. Um, similarly, if we talk about the type of identity that I mentioned, uh, which is issued by a regulator, that is also a form of identity, but it is also quite limited because sometimes the information contained in that identity may not be current. It may not actually be accurate with regard to, for example, where you live um, or where you're traveling to. So different identities uh, have you know, different footprints, different stakeholder groups, different uses. It's important when we get into the realm of digital identity that we understand exactly who is using that digital identity apart from you, who is issuing that digital identity, who is validating the digital identity, and then actually what value does that identity bring to you, to the stakeholders, to everybody who needs to use it. You know, before we move forward, I just want you to address the elephant in the room, which is social media. One of the latest challenges that we have seen, and uh, I'm sure that you are also aware of the fact as to how certain organizations and even political lobby plays with our emotion using social media. And one of the examples is the recent case of last election win uh, and Cambridge Analytic involvement in manipulating the voters. Don't you feel that the use of social media, which was actually created to bring people closer, is now moved on to the next level, wherein we can actually see it as a threat, as uh, it can not just manipulate us for buying certain products or services, but now it can also manipulate us for even being a part of societal discomfort, such as religious, gender, or color bias, or even more. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the extent to which technology is used, uh, let's say, for good or for evil, uh, depends on who is doing the using. Um, in the case of social media, and as you say, you know, it was originally intended as a way to bring us all together to share uh, you know, information about our communities, uh, our preferences, and so forth. But inevitably, there were more uses to the information, the vast quantities of information that people were willingly uploading um, without much protection or care or actually understanding of the implications 
of what that data now presents and represents. So with social media over the last, let's say, 10 years, um, it kind of got away from itself. It's not the evil of social media in itself, but it's the monster that has been created. Now, the problem with social media, I think, when it comes to manipulating people, I mean, advertising has been manipulating people for decades. You know, that's not new. Uh, being able to push products or being able to um, influence people to make certain buying decisions is not new. Um, what becomes insidious and what people find threatening is when concepts like democracy are being undermined because you're being manipulated in a particular way. So this is something which is relatively, I suppose, you know, recent, you know, last five, five, ten years or the last few election cycles, because the thing that makes us choose or buy politicians and politics and a way of life is just as much a commodity which can be sold as any other product. Um, when this was realized by the social media giants, um, obviously they treat it as a product. They don't look at it as a way to manipulate an election. It's a way to influence um, a consumer for a choice of politics, which is a product. So I think we have to be careful when we um, you know, point the fingers uh, in a kind of a, a perjurative manner. Um, at the end of the day, we choose what we put on our social media or not. We choose how it is that we wish to be influenced. We can always say no. But of course, it's a very compelling situation now where people don't really want to let go of their social media. They're so used to the, you know, to the benefits and the connectivity and the friends. And maybe the thing to step back is uh, and to you know, take a look at this kind of scenario we built is to ask, you know, is it really delivering the types of benefits that we want? Um, and if it's not, just stop. You know, I uh, read the Cambridge Analytica statistics when uh, they had mentioned that uh, they had captured 5,000 data points on every individual in the United States. And as per the Fox News, today Facebook might have 29,000 data points on every individual. And as per uh, research, these companies may have around 70,000 data points on any individual in the next few years. How do you see it as a threat and simultaneously as an opportunity? Okay, I mean, I think the number of data points in and of itself is probably just a matter of time. I mean, at the time that Cambridge Analytica was doing its thing, you know, they, they only had 5,000 data points. And then if you now look at every one of those data points being um, uh, appended or enhanced, you're probably going to get... You know, today, we are at around 29,000 data points. Exactly. So, you know, it, that's that's probably just a, shall we say, a linear progression from the first 5,000. I, I think that, you know, the the reality of it would be, um, and to come back to the question of threat, um, the threat would be which data points are being used to create what sort of influence? And is that an influence that um, we are unaware of? I mean, I think one of the problems with Cambridge Analytica um, and in fact, even prior to, to Cambridge Analytica with the, uh, for example, the Five Eyes program, which, um, uh, you know, Snowden and all of the WikiLeaks documents and so forth, it was actually kind of going behind our backs to do things. That was the, the, the thing, I think, which, which most people found, you know, very uncomfortable is that we didn't know. And simply, and, and again, with Analytica, you know, the, the way that they went in and uh, got the data points by actually asking other things um, and collating the data points through things like um, you know games and surveys and so forth, without an you know an explicit um, or even a a marginal kind of informed consent. That was really the quote unquote bad thing. Now, if today you are being asked a survey um, about your political choices. And you are then uh, answering those, you know, that survey honestly. And let's say you're even being paid for it. Now that would be pretty above board, and I think a lot of people would would probably have no objection to that because it's transparent. But I think with the early days of of this kind of manipulation, um, people felt, you know, Analytica and others probably felt that um, being surreptitious or being able to mine the data is a valid way of going about things 
when that actually isn't. But I think the actual point of, of having data and being able to glean certain insights and analytics and so forth, I mean, that's just the nature of data. And it's the nature of, you know, the, the permissions that people give. Uh, it's just that when it's given unknowingly um, or, you know, without um, proper information as to what it's going to be used for, then it becomes a problem. And that's the threat. You know, today you see any social media platform and the kind of information they show us on our wall. Mm -hmm. Don't you feel that this is a kind of intrusion in my private space? And having my touch points by social media monster is against my digital rights? Okay, so when it comes to privacy, I mean, this is an interesting, you know, concept. And especially, of course, one which is at the heart of digital identity. Um, I mean, the nature of privacy, of course, in itself has changed because we are now all in the digital realm. So let's say that, you know, we exist because of our data. Uh, today, you know, we have access to many products and services, services primarily, that depend on a certain digital footprint that we have somewhere, you know, somebody's database somewhere. The question of privacy um, can really only be enforced if we know exactly where that data is and what it is that we own. So let's imagine, you know, you have a house, okay, or you have a, a car. Um, you know, somebody can't break into your house because you have, you know, a property right to that house. Uh, so you know that that house is yours. And if somebody breaks into it and starts stealing stuff or taking photos and whatever it's going to be, um, you have recourse because there are laws to protect you because you own it. The thing that stops somebody else from taking your stuff is your property right. Now, if you think about data, there is no such thing. You do not own the data that is put on a wall on your social media account. The social media company owns it. They can even say that actually your, your, your data with regard to your identity as issued by the government, they don't know that because when you created your social media account, you did not have to upload your birth certificate. You do not have to upload your passport or your Aadhaar card or anything like that. I mean, they will take you at your word with regard to who you say you are. And then you create a wall and you start posting photos and you do this and the other. And so as far as they are concerned, this um, uh, bundle of data is an identity, not your identity. It's an identity. And what they have given you in terms of the tools to be able to present that identity is, means that you are just creating content. So you don't own that. So in reality, how you are going to push back with an idea like privacy is actually very difficult. There's, there's no recourse to it whatsoever. And you know I'm saying this in simple terms, but you take what I'm saying simply and you expand it into a 200-page contract, and that's the thing that you don't read when you click I agree at the beginning. So it's all there. And privacy is, is, is explicitly excluded. <laughs> When you get to that point. True. True. And and uh, do you feel that today you are kind of defined by what your digital footprints are? And that has actually become your actual identity. Absolutely. I mean, that is actually the premise of, of you know, much of the work that I'm doing now is that um, let's assume that it is inevitable that within a very short space of time, everybody will have some form of digital footprint. Now, the question is whether or not they are able to access and manage that digital footprint. Why I say that everybody will is because, um, you know, almost every government in the world is using some form of uh, digital management for their identities. Even if they don't have digital identities, like, for example, um, you know, in, in India, where you actually have a physical expression of a digital identity in the Aadhaar card, there will be a database somewhere which qualifies whether you are a citizen of that country or whether you pay taxes or whether, you know, all sorts of things. So almost you know, all data today is no longer um, analog. It is digital. Therefore, if you exist somewhere, um, you must be in digital form somewhere, whether you know it or not. The way that we'll be progressing with identity is more and more how you become aware of what exists digitally about you and then how you can begin to um, control or um, be selective about who gets to see what about your identity. But we've already gone past the point where 
you know, you can be off the grid. That's that's just not happening. I mean, it's, it's, it's that's the past. You know, I completely agree that digital identity has opened our doors for various possibilities. And in the same context, when we are talking about identity, then we have also heard about uh, malware or hacking threats. But today, at a point when even countries feel pride in becoming almost 100% digital, then this actually exposes to another threat, which are far more serious and heinous. And one such threat is synthetic identity fraud. Can you throw some light on this and how actually we can safeguard ourselves from such threats? But what, what's the difference between, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you the question, what's the difference between synthetic identity fraud and somebody forging your passport and traveling? You know, synthetic identity fraud has a much bigger impact than uh, document forging. You mean they can do more harm? Exactly. Yeah, but isn't doing any harm bad? Doing any harm is bad. Yeah, so, you know, so now we're talking about degrees of harm. I mean, the point is that, ironically, if somebody were to create a synthetic identity for you, you actually have no recourse because they haven't broken any laws. If somebody were to forge your passport, they've actually broken a law. So interestingly enough, the protections that exist for what would be a lesser scale of harm, in other words, forging a passport, actually carries more penalties and can be prosecuted. Whereas what you say, the wider scope of harm, which is your digital identity, and your um, uh, synthetic identity actually has no protections whatsoever. So that's the kind of you know concern that we need to be looking at when we talk about digital identity. And I think this the 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 concept of being able to uh, protect your identity or to be able to vest the protection of your identity identity in a third party is actually uh, false. You, you, we we can't support that theory because if you think about internet principles, um, the only thing you can do is to build um, a better verification or audit trail process that increases the probability that your identity is authentic. But there will never be a definitive position that says, I can say this is you. So true. And, and how, according to you, an individual or an organization can control their digital footprints and how they can safeguard themselves from uh, the digital identity fraud? Well, actually, I, I think that, you know, any intermediary between um, the, uh, the system, the Internet, uh, you know, with a, with a, a big, big eye uh, and the individual um, is prone to vulnerability. So I don't think we should be vesting our hopes and our trust in any intermediary, whether it's a private organization or whether it's government. Um, that simply uh, is not viable. We need to develop one-to-one -one relationships with the system of our uh, data, where the data is stored, how it's being processed, and, and so forth. So, you know, even in the work that, that we're doing um, at, at Blue Number, we're essentially trying to say that, you know, the identity, a digital identity has two components. One is a tech a technical or a technological component, which is, let's say, how the identities manifest, where you see it and so forth. But more importantly, it's the ability for us to govern that identity with a body and a suite of um, regulations, legislations, you know, what our society expects the digital identity to convey, uh, to be protected from. That's not technical. That's what we agree on. And the 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 loophole or the lacuna here is that there's no agreement primarily between states because governments really want to control identity as they have been doing since you know states were formed so how important is it to understand digital rights and digital freedom and how one can safeguard themselves from being manipulated or being trapped in the lacunas or such concerns that you have just raised yeah so well i mean the first thing is to understand whom it is that you are trying to be protected from I mean, why a good, a good question to ask is, what is this backlash that's happening against big tech and why? Okay. Um, and there are, this has happened a few times before. Um, when, when you see Congress um, or the EU uh, going after big tech in this way, it's very similar to, let's say, you know, 10 years ago when um, uh, people went after uh, the phone companies, which had a lot of records, especially mobile phone companies. Um, and then you have legislation that says that, you know, you can't get a, 
um, uh, a prepaid card without certain forms of identity and, and so forth. Uh, prior to that, you had um, you know legislation against uh, vehicle ownership, um, uh, against uh, property, against against land. As soon as there becomes some record of information or data that is beyond what the government has, then the government pushes back, and that's what you're seeing now happening. And actually, in, in the financial world, you will recall maybe at the early days of crypto. Uh, there was a big pushback from um, the um, uh, traditional banks. But now, you know, every bank is also using some form of crypto. Um, if you imagine before there was, um, you know, the, uh, the telcos uh, were obsessed with not having or not giving access to VOIP because they were charging for, um, uh, you know, traditional um, lines. Now, every telco basically resells VOIP in one form or another. Um, and even for a while there, they were actually charging us normal prices, but using VOIP behind us. So all we're looking at is the change of systems between one to another. Now, I'm not defending big tech in any way. Certainly what they've done is they've created a business model where the manipulation of people is actually very profitable. My, um, um, my interest is why we think that having privacy against big tech protects us from privacy against any other stakeholder. Because in any given situation, let's say we look at WhatsApp, uh, you know, you have end-to-end -end encryption between, let's say, if I send you a WhatsApp, there's you, me, and Facebook in the conversation, right? These are the three people who actually theoretically could, you know, well, if we believe everything on the screen, we are the three people who would be able to access something. And the one who is actually assuring that it's end-to-end -end encryption is Facebook. In the same way, with all our other data, there's you, me, and our government. So why would we say, for example, it's okay for the government to have the final arbitration on our data and they can protect our privacy as opposed to Facebook? Now, Certainly, I don't even have a Facebook account. I mean, I do, but I don't, you know, it's, it's more through the company. I, I don't manage or do anything with it. Um, but I think that, you know, we must be aware of whom it is that we are vesting our trust in and why. And that's the concern. That's where, you know, I think privacy and threats exist. As you have rightly mentioned about telecom companies or financial institutions, then the government has actually tried to enforce certain uh, law and legislation. But at the same time, these organizations are creating a digital footprint. And we certainly understand that this is our future, but don't you feel that we are still exposed to various threats, including phishing, scam, data theft, protection legislation, and more? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, as soon as you have, you know, any kind of um, channel, whether it's analog or whether it's um, digital, you're going to be exposed to threats. I do think that there's been a lot of scaremongering because most people don't understand technology. Now, I think with, with any degree of threat or with any degree of um, 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 manipulation, one thing to ask would be, what is the, what's the payoff? You know, what's the motive? So um, when, when, I, when we looked at, for example, the, um, you know, the, the telco thing, which, which Snowden revealed and which we discussed a, a little bit earlier, I mean, for me, if somebody had, you know, Verizon or somebody had kind of called up and said, hey, listen, I want to be able to, you know, to access all your phone records and know everybody you've called uh, and being able to, and be able to use that for AI. And I'll give you a $10 rebate a month on your bill if you let me do it. Chances are I would have said, OK, and chances are almost everybody would have said, OK, because there was a quid pro quo there. I don't care who's looking at my phone accounts, because I don't actually have any secrets, you know, whoever it is they're calling. So if you are suddenly going to pay me 10 bucks or give me a rebate of 10 bucks, why not? So the question here, I think, also goes back to, to being able to make informed consent. If we create the specter of existential threats, you know, something out there is going to harm us. Yeah, for sure. But the things which are going to harm you, you would never be able to, to work out in advance. Um, Actually, for that that you know Snowden thing, it was very interesting. Uh, there was one uh, interview that was given by um, a British major who was running GCHQ, you know the um, uh, the British government's um, kind of spying center uh, on data center, and he was on the BBC, and he basically gave this interview, and he said, 
um, he was shocked that people didn't think this was already happening because it had already appeared in so many movies and it was presented as fiction. I mean, granted, he never had another interview again because obviously he was pulled out, you know, from the government, uh, from by the government from from speaking on air. But but I'm also shocked when people actually think, why don't you think that the worst things that you can possibly imagine are already happening? Because they are. Now, when we talk about the whistleblower yeah. or uh, people who want to reach out on public platforms to speak about the evil or wrongdoing happening in the digital space. Don't you feel that they kind uh, of create a buzz, but then the problem that they face is is that the bigger organizations or even political machinery stops them from uh, you know widespreading their information, and that's why majority of our people are not aware about such issues and challenges, and they are still trying to get on these social media platforms and are unknowingly leaving their digital footprints without even realizing that. This can also possess a threat for themselves. Yes, um, but I mean, what I are you? How do you? So I mean, so this actually takes us to 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 a, you know to a very uh, interesting um, discussion about digital development and digital divide. If we are actually moving towards uh, an area where our entire life is going to be governed or is already governed by, um, uh, you know, the the digital process and the digital realm. Surely one of the things that we really should be educating everybody about, like, you know, kids from day one in kindergarten, is your digital footprint. Why is it that we are still, you know, that there are so many situations where this is kept as though it is an add-on to life as opposed to the center of life? We cannot imagine a situation, you know, moving forward where uh, some kind of digital footprint is not going to be at the core of your identity. Therefore, in the same way that a child knows as soon as they can, you know, that there are certain documents and other things which, you know, their, their parents keep, which they have to show in certain places. Why is it that the child who can now, for example, um, you know, as soon as they're eight or nine years old can get a smartphone, but they're not told or not educated properly as to what the consequences of usage of that smartphone in particular ways means this this is simply you know seems to be um where we are behind on the curve with regard to the um the position of how the centrality of digital of digitization is in our society we we are simply not keeping pace with having those things available in the recent past i have also seen that there are a few companies which have tried to bend the rule and are trying to create the ethical digital space. And uh, even you are one of them. But don't you feel that uh, there is a pushback from the large corporation or even political machinery as for them, ethical organization is a threat? Sure. I mean, you know, the I mean, eth- ethics has never been a particularly profitable enterprise. History has shown. Um, but at the end, um, shall we say, uh, you know, um, self-enlightened, um uh responsibility will win out because the and I'm not necessarily saying it's going to happen in you know in quote unquote my digital lifetime um but the 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 normalization of the the benefits when it becomes unprofitable to um to manipulate and to steal this sort of thing you know, data and, and people's identities, then you will suddenly see um, the, uh, the incidence of it go down and ethical companies like, you know, like ours or organizations like ours, um, you know, will, be, will, will just have been the guys who wrote some of the rules, hopefully, or contributed to some of that thinking. But um, pushback is, is inevitable. I mean, you know, anything which is going to come with, with a lot of vested interests, whether it's going to be government or whether it's going to be food and ag players that have got um, you know, supply chains that were actually created just after the Second World War, but are still, you know, great polluters of all sorts of things, you know, plastic in the ocean. This, These are all simply residuals of, of a time and systems which are, which everybody agrees out of date, but trying to slow the inertia of these bad habits, which have been kind of ingrained on a global level. And that also includes keeping people in the dark which is 
you know, a, a, a control, a power play, um, it's inevitable. So you are going to get, I, I suppose the benefit of it is this, you know, that at least in this environment, you even know about companies like ours or organizations like ours. Um, 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have even had the, the very same means, the internets and the platforms and so forth, to even talk about you know, what would be an ethical position for this conundrum that we are and in. And do you feel that before allowing our kids on digital platforms, and I'm not just referring to social media, I'm rather talking about the entire digital space, that before allowing our kids to be on digital platform, we must first empower them with the understanding of deciding between the right and wrong and with the ethics and values of being on the digital platform so that they understand what they are doing instead of falling in the compulsive trap laid by the society. Yeah, I see, I would have stopped you actually just after, you know, digital, uh, just after right and wrong. Whether it's on a digital platform or whether it's in real life, you know, what difference does it make? The problem is that that people, you know, who are older, um, you know, don't take the time and trouble to, uh, you know, to vest good habits and and good thinking and, um, you know, the 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 wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong, and that's just education. It doesn't matter whether it's digital or whether it's, um, you know, any other form. So so certainly, I would absolutely agree. You need to. You know, to to you, we have a responsibility as as people who know a little bit more because we've been a, around a bit longer, to help people who are younger uh, understand the implications. But the decisions that they're going to make um, with technologies that we never had, I you know, I often with with my wife, for example, you know, we used to have discussions about how much screen time was appropriate for our daughters. I I, I now have you know two daughters who are um 18 and 19 years old but at the time let's say six seven years ago uh it was always an issue as to how much screen time what are they looking at uh putting in filters uh blah 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 and all this and and i i actually resisted that that um you know temptation to impose my set of pre-digital values uh into the you know the the future of what um, you know these kids would be doing uh, in the same way that when I was a teenager or when I was a younger person, I made mistakes and I learned from the mistakes um, and those were analog mistakes you know driving the car badly or uh, you know um, just doing bad things i mean i can 't remember all of them because there were too many um, but um, but there will be digital mistakes today, and I think it 's the peer group you know of of my daughters and and their peer group who have to learn what those mistakes are, um, and they can be helped. But what they need to, to do is to be able to have a sense of right and wrong and to be able to make that judgment. And whether it's digital, you know, you're looking at something on the screen. Is this an appropriate image? Is this, you know, a type of hate? Um, are we victimizing somebody? Uh, do I now learn something about a supply chain which um, gives me the power to not buy that product. Do I know what that means? Um, you know, these are not necessarily digital things. In fact, if anything, the digital realm should help the, the next generation or the younger generation make better decisions because they have more information at their fingertips. The question is how do you use the information and, and, and ascribe them to a set of values? And that's our responsibility as you know, older people. Even the value education has to be at the forefront. And I always advocate that. And here I'm not just talking about the understanding of basic right and wrong because in a normal world, one can judge the right and wrong through the senses. But when we talk about digital footprints, then the majority of the things are unseen as, uh, you know, what kind of data points the organizations are capturing and how they're actually manipulating us using the same data points. And, you know, this is why I actually uh, keep it a little different from the analog system as you know, just, just to give you an example, if a friend of mine is uh, you know, uh, into wrongdoing, then I have the power to choose between the right and wrong for me. But when I don't know how uh, I am leaving my digital footprints and how these giants are manipulating me using my digital footprints, then what can I do to safeguard myself as a kid or as a teenager? No, nothing. Because you don't know. 
I mean, you, you can only react, as you say, you know, in the analog world, it's based on your senses. And in the digital world, it's based on the processing of information. And I think, you know, kids these days, um, <laughs> I sound like a super old guy, but, you know, people who understand how to use devices, <laughs> you know, um, it, people who understand how to use devices to a different level, I think also appreciate um, in a different way the nature of information. So I wouldn't presume to to act as a proxy sensor on on systems that I I don't understand. I think that the people who will have to organize their lives in a digital fashion will be those who grew up in the digital environment in, entirely. So um, the best we can do, you know, as the outgoing generation of, of uh, you know, pre-digital, I mean, and I think we are the ones who are kind of living um, at the cusp between the analog and the digital era. The best we can do is to take over uh, or to convey the values, because that, I think, is, you know, will, will be material in whichever world. Um, but for me to presume that, you know, I could I could tell somebody who, you know, was kind of born with a smartphone in their hand, um, how to understand information uh, by my limited understanding of it. It's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I mean, I, I bought kids, you know, my, my iPads for my kids when, when they were very, very young. And I, I, I consciously didn't, you know, use, show them how to use it other than press this button. Um, you know, it, it was very much the approach of, well, let's see. And of course, you know, maybe I was interested in experimenting a bit, with, you know, with with the children. But it was um, it was kind of like that. And now I look at the way that you know that they use devices, um, and it's it's highly intuitive. So that intuition, I think, arises from just a different capacity to be able to process information and the way that information is collected, harnessed, and presented or represented, which. Is beyond me. Don't you actually feel that the millennials are actually uh, the guinea pigs of these tech laboratories? And I'm not just talking from the threats or theft point of view, or even the identity fraud point of view. Uh, <clears throat> but as millennials, uh, you know, millennials are living in an era wherein if they don't get likes or comments on their posts, then they commit suicide. And this is not just ethical or value disconnect, but this is actually creating mental traumas. Yeah, I, I think that, the, so So let, let, okay, then maybe we should kind of rephrase that. We've basically got two generations that are at the cusp. Um, I think that, um, you know, millennials, and, and I'm, I'm currently, you know, watching this, um, was it Emily in Paris, um, which is interesting because I'm, I'm actually watching it to, to kind of, understand a little better what what millennials think of their first kind of like you know real world experience or jobs or and it's not real at all but it's interesting and it's somewhat entertaining um the thing the difference i think between millennials and let's say you know my generation would be the value set i think that we didn't do a particularly good job of recognizing um you know as uh, in my generation how important the values the non digital values were um and so you know i remember you know, what it was like and how important it was for my dad to have a job and to go to work. Um, and, um, you know, that kind of the, the, the stability or the regularity of what was a nuclear family. You know, these concepts have totally disappeared in the last like, so 10, 15 years, at least in the developed world. Um, so, you know, you've got, uh, and as we move more towards, shall we say, the fragmentation of um, a digital environment, it's going to get um more difficult to understand it's not better or worse it's just the way it is so it's like you know when 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 we look at the new normal and people are talking about the new normal here with um post covid i mean we've been living the new normal for the last 10 15 years while we've been trying to assess what the hell's going on with the internet so i think that the millennials certainly are not having an easy time but i also think that we can't prejudge what are the challenges they're going to face because they're certainly not the challenges that we didn't face. I mean, like I would be less concerned now if a millennial, for example, didn't have quote unquote, a steady job because, you know, 
We've been through the gig economy. We've been through whatever type of work from home economy we're having now. I don't even know what's going to happen like, you know, next Tuesday. So who am I to be able to pass judgment on whether a millennial is making the right decision or not because they need 2000 likes on a particular photo? Maybe that's the way things are going to pan out. We're still in a, in a situation of flux, I think. And, um, you know, I don't mean to be ambiguous or, or, or kind of vague, but I think we need to be conscious of what can we actually control? Um, and I don't think the millennials and the way they think, I mean, that's been proven time and time again. Um, we certainly can't control that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I agree that we cannot control that. But according to you, what should be the way forward for digital footprints and how different individuals or industries can use digital footprints in the ethical and the right way, which uh, is, you know, maybe to boost the economy or to boost their own employee engagement or maybe uh, to reduce the inequalities or bridging the gender gap or, you know, any other uh, sustainable development issues. Yeah, I I think that, that, you know, all of these issues come down to the sort of the fundamental way that we have recognized value in in other products and services. I mean, this is not a new thing that we're trying to work out. At some point, you know, we're going to say that, listen, there's an asset. There's an asset that is being created, and that's a digital asset. Your digital identity, and we're not necessarily talking about health records or, you know, that sort of thing. We're talking about the fact that if you are posting to social media, what you're really doing is you are creating content that can be monetized by other people. You are you're actually generating an output, which is a monetizable output. Now, once we start recognizing that, um, you know, doing work and not getting paid for it or being indentured into something is a form of slavery, then essentially we are all data slaves at the moment to social media, right? That That is, you know, we, we got over slavery by recognizing that everybody should get paid fairly for their work. We got over um, uh, food safety by recognizing that we should have minimum standards by which uh, there should be sanitary and hygiene that's going into you know, processing plants. We are getting over now the idea that we can't be exploiting ecosystem services endlessly without uh, consequences to our environment. Um, Black Lives Matter is getting over the fact that there is um, uh, you know, ingrained intolerance um, uh, based on the color of people's skin. So there is always a time at which we will get over certain things. But, you know, in reality, if, if, if I look at the, the Black Lives Matter situation, once again, and, I, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not American, um, I'm Malaysian, but I'm proud of the fact that somebody is kind of doing the work for us there. If I think about Malaysia and, you know, its ingrained racism, if I think about the UK and its ingrained classism, uh, if I think about India and you know the the, the spectrum of issues, whether it's from class to um, to um, uh, to religion, um, so you know these are only three countries. Every country has its own kind of quirks as to um, what is tolerated or not. So you know we should thank those guys who are breaking down um, the. The, you know the barriers of talking about things and calling out the injustices, the data slavery injustices. You know it's the American big tech companies against the American Congress. Uh, Black Lives Matter. It's about reparations um, in you know the U.S. Uh, against the U.S. Constitution, against um, you know freedom, justice, liberty, and all of those things. You know, like it or not, um, even the fact that you know Trump could get elected. And you know may get elected again, but the fact that he could in a place like that tells us one thing, which is you know democracy like in in its in its most um, raw form kind of prevails. But what we realized there, of course, was you know that the popular vote doesn't translate into the electoral college. So if I was the U.S., I mean obviously I'm not, but if I was, then the first thing I want to do is to go back and look at that system. But these ideas of changing, you know, the way that we operate as a global society or a society and now a global society, especially when you move into the digital realm, um, we'll get over it. But there's going to be some pain and suffering while we do. I mean, everything requires revolution, right?
And what do you have to say about these companies which have uh, recently started mushrooming and are trying to create next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg and are actually manipulating with the brains of six-year-olds? Um, yes, but am I surprised? No. And do I think that it can be controlled? Yes. But the will to control it um, has to come in the same way as would you be marketing sugary foods to a six-year-old child? You know, th- there's no difference. The, I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in, in the UK, and I remember that there were very strict rules about what could be advertised to children on Saturday morning during, you know, Saturday cartoons. Um, and, you know, no sugary foods, no, you know, no kind of like uh, toys with guns, uh, that sort of thing. And as soon as, you know, we see that there are certain implications and society wants to do something about it, then they will. Um, what's happening with big tech now is that they have gone so far ahead because governments don't understand internet speed that now, you know, Congress and, and everyone else are trying to play catch up. So, yes, I agree that, you know, the six-year-olds should be protected from those companies. Similarly. Um, you know, the, the six or the 10-year-olds or the 15-year-olds need to know what are the implications of putting up content on TikTok. But as you see, it's really not that easy once it becomes part of a socio-cultural phenomenon. And again, the pushback then comes not from, um, you know, shall we say the good and ethical people who realize the problems. It's actually from the populists who are afraid of cutting off that TikTok feed because they'll lose the votes of the people who are using TikTok and like it. So again, it's it's politics and will. I don't know if the will is there to be able to stop the manipulation. And why do we have to get over with the digital platforms? We just need to learn how to use them wisely, isn't it? Correct. And at the same time, there are many organizations which are actually creating ethical platforms for the benefit of the society. And we have one such example, which is your organization, Blue Number. Why don't you share some information about Blue Number Foundation and how this can also be replicated in other industries? Absolutely. I mean, you know, so and the thinking behind Blue Number, um, uh, you know, as a foundation, it, it is a, a nonprofit. Uh, you know, we, we set up in New York after I left the UN. I mean, that was really because when I was at the UN, we had, uh, I was I was involved in two uh, streams of work, both of which um, were wicked problems, you know, global challenges, human rights as, as a problem and food security as a problem. Um, and when you combine these two problems, you realize, or at least I realize that, you know, the unit of analysis that we're looking at, the person who is typically um, both hungry as well as denied rights, uh, tends to be uh, those people in rural areas, marginalized communities, vulnerable people. And and now, you know, I, I suppose already when I say these words, people are imagining, let's say, you know, some indigenous person in a forest somewhere. But actually, we've got like one and a half billion of these people and they serve our food system. They are all the small farmers and their families, you know, whose names we don't know. Um, they are the 90 plus percent of people who um, exist, you know, on uh, a subsistence or, or, you know, a contract farming basis. Uh, they are the ones whose goods do not go across borders, um, uh, but actually supply local you know, villages and keep the local economy going. So when I created Blue Number Foundation, you know, for me, it was important that uh, this, this group of people who already have transactions and are part of an economy actually get the dignity of recognition. And if I was looking at the global south and looking a little bit ahead, you know, five years ago, um, I said, look, you know, everybody's going to have a smartphone. Why do we keep trying to design systems where we are not um, encompassing, you know, the, the wave that is happening anyway? It is inevitable that digital identity is going to be part of everybody's um, uh, persona, everybody's makeup. You're going to be born with a digital ID soon enough. And so what you really need to have is the right to have that identity within your own sphere of influence. So it's a global democracy. It's a globalization of the idea of identity. Um, I I just, you know, I I don't believe that 
we we as people should be um, should suffer the limitations that the things that we produce don't have. I could be growing something in in Africa, and that you know product can travel freely to other countries. Uh, that product can clear licenses. That product can be exchanged for cash. But I myself will probably live and die within five kilometers of where I was born. And and for me, that seems fundamentally wrong. If we don't have the, the liberty of movement and the liberty of presence that our goods and services have, then there's a real problem with the way that we see global society. Digital identity then gives us this identity, this, this opportunity that even if we can't move physically, then our digital persona should not be constrained by you know, the limitations of the past, which could be our physical body. And what kind of you know, challenges me is that we have this wonderful uh, open platform like the internet, and we're trying to put restrictions on it that emulate a world that didn't really succeed. We are trying to create the barriers that we have in the physical world and put them into the digital space. And that just seems like, you know, sort of remarkably wrong to me. And hence why Blue Number is, is a, you know, is an identity for global citizenship. It, it confers property rights to your data. Um, whether it is recognized in the same way as governments do and so forth, that's a different question. But somebody's got to get out there and say, okay, I respect the fact that you are who you claim to be. I don't need to know anything more than that. That's like social media. Um, but you also, if you want to have the probability of, of being uh, proven to be who you claim you are, bring all of your peers to come in and recognize you, again, like social media. But the value and the difference is that you are bringing in peers who are probably transacting with you. So now you have a trust system that is being built up. You add you know, tokenization, you add crypto, you add this and the other. You can actually build an entire economy with your digital identity without necessarily having to you know, worry about real-world barriers. And that's, that's the, the trajectory of Blue Number, I hope. That's what we're trying to do. Well, this is interesting. And I'm sure that uh, in the days to come, we will see many organizations using digital space for the benefit of our societies and even uh, you know, for boosting the economy. I, I hope so. And with this, it's time to say goodbye to you, my friend. It was a pleasure having you on the show, Proven. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. I very much appreciate that. I hope that you all have enjoyed listening to this fun and meaningful conversation with Puvan Selvanathan. If you have liked this conversation, then do rate us on Apple Podcasts and share it with your network. And we will meet again in the next episode with another amazing guest. Thank you for listening to The Ed Show. You can now listen to the same podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts or you can watch it live on YouTube. And I'll see you in the next episode. Till then, stay safe and stay happy.